any human being loves it when they get asked for help. Mm. Think about how flattering that is, that someone trusts you enough to be vulnerable and that they respect your expertise, your wisdom enough to actually ask for help. It, and his comment to me at the time was, the worst thing that will happen is someone will say, I'm really sorry, I can't help you, but let me help you find someone who can. Hey there, this is Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Lead the Team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 2% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back. Today, I have for you Monica McGurk, who is CEO and Disruptor. Having worked with some of America's most iconic brands, including Tropicana, where she's currently group CEO, Coca-Cola, Kellogg, and Tyson, and its most disruptive startups, including Beyond Me and Pivot Bio. She's also an award-winning author who got her start in fan fiction and wife and mom to three, make it four if you include the dog. Monica, welcome to Lead the Team. So glad to be joining you. Thanks for having me. So what type of dog are we are we mentioning here? Um, we're definitely talking about a COVID era puppy, a Bernie Doodle. Oh, She's nice. really, really adorable, but quite large. So okay, she's right. on our toes. We went the other way with a teeny tiny 12-pound Shih Tzu. And man, it's amazing how much exercise something so small actually needs. Yep. They they Ooh. definitely keep us busy. So what did you learn about leadership from an incident that your oldest child had in the swimming pool? Oh, it's it's a fun story. As long as everyone knows from the from the upfront that nothing bad happened, everyone was safe. Good uh, tension from a, a, a fiction writer there. Yeah, <laughs> don't want people to be too much on the edge of their seats. Um, yeah. So my oldest son was I don't know maybe three or four you know, going through swimming lessons, definitely was making progress. And we found ourselves one afternoon in the backyard where we had a pool with his cousins, aunt and uncle on the lake. We watched him enter the pool and we're right there. So we knew nothing bad could happen because we were right there to be ready. Um, But we watched with fascination as he went deeper and deeper up to his shoulders, up to his neck, up to his chin, and got to a point where he was on his very tippy toes, head tilted back with just this little circle of face above the water, barely holding on, using his arms to stay in that position. And he wouldn't ask for help. Mm. And like I said, we were right there, so there was no real risk. We finally said, Trey, do you need help? And he couldn't make a peep because he was so terrified, but he just nodded his head a little bit. And then we jumped in and swept him out and, you know, all was fine. Um, And I love that story because it just blew us away that someone so evidently in need of help 
Hmm. Would not ask for help. And we actually went to the point at that time as a family of practicing as a family, being in the pool and yelling, help, help, so that the kids would learn to ask for help no matter what was going on. And it it always stuck with me because, gosh, you, you learn so much from your kids, right? But isn't that a great learning for all of us? And I think particularly as you grow in your leadership in a career, no matter what career you're in, it can often feel harder and harder to ask for help, right? And to show authentically and with real vulnerability what you need. But how powerful is it when you do? And how how needed is it that we all do that? And I'll let you in on a secret. Um, A few years later, I was with one of my clients at the time, I was still consulting, who was also a mentor to me. And he shared with me, gosh, how, how he loved it and really how any human being loves it when they get asked for help. Hmm. Think about how flattering that is that someone trusts you enough to be vulnerable and that they respect your expertise, your wisdom enough to actually ask for help. Hmm. It, and his comment to me at the time was the worst thing that will happen is someone will say, I'm really sorry. I can't help you, but let me help you find someone who can. Like no one's ever going to be insulted. It's really a a beautiful thing if if you think about it. Um, And so it's really stuck with me. And as I've grown as a leader, thinking about how I can create the right conditions for everyone to understand it's safe to ask for help. But also, if you're truly so much on autopilot that you never need, need help, you're probably not stretching yourself and putting yourself out to stretch the organization enough to really realize the full potential that could be available to you. Wow. That is a huge mic drop moment on what asking for help is great illustration. And I haven't really thought about that, but if you're not asking for help as a leader uh, and you need it one, maybe you're not being vulnerable vulnerable enough or you've got some sort of ego hang up on asking for help in general or what might be the case is is you're not pushing yourself and your team and your organization to the next level where you need help and that's why organizations exist in the first place is to spread risk and sort of spread the work yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and and when you internalize that Right, how you show up as a leader is going to be very different because the pressure of having all the answers goes away because instead you're focused on how you can help others more as a servant leader and also how you can build a team that's better than you, unlock their potential so that you you can be positioned more as the barrier buster, the synergizer, like all the things that escalating levels of leadership can unlock without having to be super answer man all the time. Mm. I think a lot of people build their career on subject matter expertise. And when you do that, uh, man, it's hard to be like, I don't know the answer now. And I'm the subject matter expert. What do you say to people who are the subject matter expert? You were 19 years with the company who has all the answers, right? McKinsey. I think what I learned from being at McKinsey was to ask good questions. Ooh. 
right? Not have um, all the answers, but to have great questions. Have great questions. Um, and, you know, pattern recognition is really valuable in the subject matter expert, can it, but it can be a trap. And I think we all learned about those traps in the last few years when everything was disrupted, right? You have to Ooh. recognize uh. that paradigm no longer works. How do I understand? How do I disaggregate? How do I find the people who can help me? in a new environment. And one of the thing about a consulting background is well, two things, I would say, you're constantly thrown into new situations. So you have to learn how to learn. Hmm. You haven't already figured that out. And you need to learn how to approach things with approve or disprove, right? It's, it's not, here's the answer, and I'm going to cherry pick facts. It's, True, a true hypothesis in the scientific method frame of reference where you're going to seek the data that will prove or disprove what you think so that you're truly forcing objectivity into the conversation without boiling the ocean. Wow. Big, a big thing to listen to for, for our audience today. Um, what if being a subject matter expert for you and those subject matter experts on your team what if you reframe that for them as being the best question asker around that subject versus having the answers? I got to chill. That I think that makes that makes sense. Now, what McKinsey? That that's a different world than leading the iconic brand Tropicana. Like, what was the moment where, like, look, I'm gonna. I mean, you had built. A heck of a career over 19 years at McKinsey, brand big brand name consulting firm. What was the moment where you decided I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make a big change here? So it goes back actually to when I originally joined McKinsey. And if I go all the way back to my college days. I was in a major that had nothing to do with business. I'd never even opened a spreadsheet. Um, what was your major? Government, political science. Okay, okay. Yeah, all right. as everybody else would call it. But, um, right. I worked on international development and um, international affairs for the most part. Uh, I thought I was going to be a diplomat for many, many reasons. I decided not to pursue that path. And I had a lot of college debt. Hmm. I said, hey, I need to get a job. Like, let's be practical. Let's get a job. And um, the consultants were recruiting a lot on campus. And I didn't know anything about business. So I was like, this is kind of fishy. Like, how can you be a consultant when you don't know anything? Seems mm -hmm. odd to me. Mm -hmm. um, but hey, it's, you know, good practice for interviews, whatever. And I really liked the people I met, the types of problems they were working on. So Long story short, um, I ended up joining um, this particular firm, but with a high degree of skepticism still, like the whole thing just really seemed off. And and I one of the sources of my skepticism was personal in that I liked the idea of being responsible for something tangible. Hmm. Um, and so I was super lucky. I had a wonderful set of mentors, great experiences, was able to repot myself many times over the course of my time as a consultant. But I never really lost that desire 
to be accountable in a different kind of way, um, to see the recommendations through to implementation, and ultimately to be a maker of something. Mm. And so um, it just, it came to a head at a point where I was like, gosh, if I, if I don't leave now, I might not ever leave. And if this is all I ever did, not that, again, I didn't appreciate um, that experience and the value it creates, but um, I didn't want that to be the entirety of my career. So that's how I came to, to making that move. All right. Well, wow. What a big move. It's a great example for leaders too, to never stop learning about yourself and and be reflective on what you truly want and don't be afraid to make, to make a change. I mean, it's 19 years at a successful, you know, doing great as a consultant and then moving, uh, but, but knowing what you want to be a part of. So, so congratulations on that. Now, I want to talk to you about prioritizing for a second because, all right, group CEO sounds kind of busy. Mother, okay. Uh, COVID pet, okay. Sounds busy. But darn it, you're writing books and lots of them. And not nonfiction. Now, I write nonfiction books. I like nonfiction, but... Fiction is another level of commitment and, you know, creativity and things like that. What is, how do you go about prioritizing um, all these things and getting them done? So the story of how I started writing again, um, it was exactly driven by that. So I had a moment in time over over 10 years ago, I was, I was still at McKinsey, um, where a lot of stuff was very challenging to me personally and professionally. Um, and I had this realization that I had been you know, all in as a mom and a wife and all in as a partner at McKinsey, but I had let everything that was just for me personally, Mm. it's squeezed out. And when you're in that mode, you, you're not really re-energizing yourself. And so when things got rough and when work and personal stuff were both rough, right. And they didn't Mm -hmm. offset each other. I didn't have anything left in my tank to give. And it was a real eye opener for me. And it manifested in me not being the kind of leader that I truly was in my heart of hearts and not showing up the way I wanted to show up. Um, I, I described it to someone at the time as feeling like you were floating at the top of the room and the ceiling and watching yourself behave in this way. That was not really mm. great. And seeing it and recognizing it, but not being able to stop yourself like mm. that had never happened to me before. So like it took a, a real step back and in intervention for me to think, okay, how, how am I going to change this? Cause I don't want to be this way. Um, and that realization about, you know, you got to invest in yourself a little bit and prioritize you as a person um, came to the forefront at that time. I was traveling a lot for my job. So I needed to find something that would give me joy and energy that I could do no matter where I was. 
which meant some things from my past were not really feasible. Like I couldn't pick up piano lessons and take a grand piano on a plane with me. So I, I was encouraged by one of my mentors to think through like, what did you used to like to do when you were little? Like go rediscover that. And so I kind of by process of elimination came to writing. And around the time I was doing this, a friend and mentor of mine was um, chatting with me about Harry Potter fan fiction because he and his Mm -hmm. son were really, really into fan fiction and Mm -hmm. I'd never heard of it. But as he was describing it and how much fun they were having reading all of this stuff online, I was like, oh, that sounds like an easy way to get back into writing because I don't have to come up with a whole new storyline and a new set of characters. I can riff on somebody else. So that's how mm-hmm, I started mm-hmm. dipping my toe into it. And these online platforms are fantastic because you can upload as little or as much as you want. Many of them have review functionality. So you're getting immediate feedback, which for someone like me mm-hmm. is like gold. Um, so I started like doing that. And before I knew it, I'd written a couple of novel length pieces along with some short stories. And then I won an award and my husband started poking me, um, like, you need to do something original now that you've really like, mm. done this. Um, and so that's what it took. And I'll tell you, it makes everything better. It makes me better as a a family member, a mom, a, a wife at work to have this kind of outlet, a creative outlet for myself. And my kids notice it, mm. right? It, it just it's restorative to me. And I will tell you, because it's not my career, right? I flex it. So I am not consistent daily, weekly as a professional quote unquote writer would be um, someone whose livelihood depends upon it. But I do make a point of carving out time as I can and then not beating myself up when I can't. Um, And it gives me a lot of joy. Hmm. Wow. So you discover, so after you have written, you get an ROE a return on energy, you invested creative energy and you feel, you feel renewed or restored after that. Yep. And I, I can tell you, there have been moments since I started doing this when I let it lapse for too long and I, I feel low energy and I can't figure out why. And then because I stopped writing. Mm. I get back into it. Suddenly it starts to come back to me again. When did you discover that writing had that effect for you? How early was it? Uh, Probably, I don't know, eight years ago, I'm guessing. I I remember very distinctly being, I wouldn't say full burnout mode, but you know, like I said, low energy, just tired and going away on a vacation with my family. And we'd put it off just because of a bunch of stuff that was going on. So it was later as a family than we would normally take our summer vacation. And every morning my kids were sleeping in because they were at that age. And so every morning I was able to get up and just uninterrupted, write with, you know, no guilt, have a cup of coffee and do that. And suddenly I was starting to feel back to my old self again. Mm. Wow, I love this those moments of self-discovery yeah. that take you to a place of rejuvenation and meaning 
And it's, it is amazing how that can fuel you in all other aspects of life. And, and I found it's a great way to meet really, really interesting people. Yeah. Yes. You know, I think it's important for leaders to be on a mission to find that for yourself. It may not be writing. It may be something else. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, I, I have the opposite effect when I write, I feel a little drained after I've like, I feel like I've, I feel a little tired. So it's not really a restorative activity, but I enjoy having written, but after, yeah, but, but after doing a podcast interview or having a coaching session or, or speaking or training or being out with a group, I do get that. I do get that feeling. Uh, some of my peers feel more drained, but that they feel invigorated after writing. And I think I just bring that up for the listeners because to recognize it's unique a lot of times based <laughs> on the individual, but if we don't have the courage to explore it and give ourselves permission, then we may never discover for ourselves. Yeah. And it's, to me, it's like, you know, the safety um, speech on the plane when you're all taking off, right? Put your own, oxygen mask on before you do someone else like you have to take care of yourself and you know a lot of times people will be like well how can you make the time and it's i just find it fascinating because first of all how can you not like when you know ultimately Mm -hmm. that your ability to be resilient might hinge on this but even setting that aside you know everybody spends time on stuff I have friends who go out and they'll do 18 holes of golf, which is, mm-hmm. you know, at least probably four hours, if not more a weekend. Oh. So it's just what you're choosing to your point that gives you energy and joy. It's different for everyone and just finding what that is for you and recognizing it might change over time as well. Mm-hmm. It's really mm-hmm. important. So important for leaders to be thinking about. So people today, I mean, you've got a, 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 CEO telling you her process. And I think it's just, I mean, it, it's really important for leaders to be thinking about this. And let's take this one a little bit in a, in a slightly different direction. What do you advise do you have for leaders um, around this area of helping pe- people connect to sources of meaning, mm-hmm. of meaning at work? Yeah. Um, this is one of my favorite things to think about. Um. And it seems really top of mind for a lot of people right now because of what we've collectively as a society gone through in the last few years, I think, and the generational expectations that seem to be shifting and the like. But I I think bottom line, I would encourage people to think about the idea that different people find meaning from different things. And as a leader, your job is not to find the one thing it's to help people find their own thing. Right. So um, some people are going to be really motivated by financial incentives. Some people might be really motivated and connect to the idea of being part of a winning team. Others might be finding a deep sense of purpose in the impact of the brand or the company on the world writ large, ESG, EDI, that kind of thing. None of those answers are wrong. 
they're all right. And your job is just to help people understand. And then if there's a, a gap in your organization, either it is a gap, right? If, if people are motivated for financial remuneration and you don't really have a good competitive compensation program, it's a choice as to whether you do that and how you address that. But usually there are lots of different sources of meaning people can tap into in any organization. All of them are appropriate. Mm-hmm. Your job is to f- help people find their hooks, what's going to hook them to the organization and make it a reality for them. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Is there a question you like, or what question do you like to ask that helps reveal that for people that maybe you've never really thought about that for themselves? Um, a couple things that I think can help start that conversation. One is the question of what brings you energy at work what or what drains your energy at work. And then the second, which is a little bit more provocative, is if three months from now you walked out the door, why would you have left? Mm-hmm. And, and for incoming candidates, the you know the other version of that is if we made you an offer, and let's assume that the compensation associated with the offer meets your needs, and you turned it down, what would be your reason for turning it down? Mm. Kind of forcing them to think through what's important to me, and then you can come back and find out: is it really going to be the compensation? Well, great questions. To your point earlier, it's not about being a subject matter expertise from an answer standpoint, but it's about having the right questions. And those are questions that can help you reveal what's meaningful and motivating to your team. I mean, there's not much more important than that other than understanding what your goals are, of course. Now, what do you say to leaders? You're like, you know what? If I These questions are a little bit like, opening up Pandora's box, because if I ask them what's meaningful to them and I help them figure it out and it has nothing to do with what they're doing right now, I'm going to lose a top performer. Um, how, how slippery a slope are we, are we talking about here? You know, you, you might find that it has that end end point someone realizing or maybe not realizing the right term might be someone might be finally able to articulate mm. the source of dissatisfaction that they have with your company. Uh, right. Mm. Um, and it, it gets back to your role mm. as a leader, right? If, if it's really not a good fit, that's okay. You can have super talented people in the wrong jobs. You can have super talented people in the wrong company. Mm-hmm. And that's okay because what you're not trying to do as a leader is trap people <laughs> nor trap them through ignorance, right? You can so, never leave Tropicana. <laughs> no matter how hard um, you try. Yeah. I, I, if, 
if we could do that, the world would be a very different place, not for the better. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I don't think there's ever really a downside of people realizing that their best and highest use is maybe somewhere else. So it's like finding, really tapping into the higher calling as a leader. Yeah. Leading and like doesn't always mean you keep it's them It's different there. for other pe- for many people, right? So yeah. if you have a systemic problem with compensation or something, you've got to address that before you start opening the Pandora's box, but, or mm-hmm. as soon as you know about that problem, but figuring out how you're going to keep your top performers motivated and recognizing that they're not all driven the same way is never a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to figure it out eventually, y'all. You might as well be a facilitator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, if it's something it. that you can help address, then you're going to be so much ahead of the curve for having had the conversation. And if if it's something that you can't and are unwilling to do, then the fact that you can get ahead of it, figure out transitions, know that you've got that risk in your organization, mm-hmm. you're still going to mm-hmm. be better off. Because to your point, eventually it will come to a head. Taking a little bit of a left turn, uh, but I, I want to make sure we have time to, to get into this. Artificial intelligence. Uh, this is this is a bridge. This is an abridged topic from what we're just talking about. But it's it is so darn hot right now. We've had the chief artificial intelligence, the first chief artificial intelligence officer from IBM on the show. We've had the president of uh, the responsible AI. Uh, or an institute that he he was the person that that there's he was a GM for Watson, uh, which was the computer that was on Jeopardy and you know all these legendary <laughs> stories. So it's a really really hot topic right now. You've been doing a lot of thought leadership on this on on LinkedIn and putting your thoughts out uh, out there, and including uh, some additional studying I saw at the University of Helsinki, which sounds incredibly fun. And and interesting. I'd be curious if it was as fun as it sounds, uh, but it it seems it seems interesting thinking about Tropicana and how <laughs> these worlds are coming together. And so I just wanted to get your input on two things. Really, one is well, we'll take it any direction you want, but how is this working with beverages? And what is the what are the bigger thoughts that you're having in this area that that leaders need to be thinking about? Yeah. So I, I appreciate the question because the topic of advanced analytics, AI, machine learning, like that whole space has been one that I've been intrigued with and playing with. I would use that term loosely for about a decade now. Um, so I think where it comes to ahead with beverages or why it's relevant is just any work process any analytical toolkit can leverage this set of tools. And we throw around the terms AI and machine learning a little loosely now, culturally. To technologists, they mean very specific things. But broadly speaking, being able to harness data and analytics to move from backwards looking to more predictive to automate things, to remove human error, like all of that when done properly is going to be really beneficial to lots of organizations, whether they're um, 
working in the nonprofit space or working in public service areas like in healthcare or traffic management or whether you're running a business. Um, so I've seen the application of this type of technology or toolkit mm-hmm. to breaking down big strategic problems that people are really having trouble cracking. Like what's, what's actually going on in this business. I can't figure it out. Let's harness this set of approaches and see what we can find. Um, predicting out of stocks and getting ahead of like a very tactical operational problem, turning on and off promotional activity, building creative content at scale, super, super cheaply. Like there are all sorts of ways you can use it regardless of industry. Um, I think that the biggest thing I would encourage people to think about now mm-hmm. is just to be aware, right? It, it's not a shiny object. You can lose a lot of money, waste a lot of money pursuing this stuff. So you need to be really thoughtful about where are the problems, what are the use cases in industry parlance that I can deploy this type of approach to that will generate value and recognize it's a business problem first. It's not a technology problem, hmm. right? Which, which means you've got to have the right set of business leaders, leadership commitment to really unlock it and deploy it um, and deploy it at scale so that you get the return on the investment. Um, So that'd be the first thing. Second thing is there's no need to go it alone. All of these technologies are moving really rapidly. There are lots of fantastic boutiques that have the, the equivalent of the killer app that you can apply to certain types of problems. So Think broadly about what your ecosystem is if you want to go down this path and deploy it. Um, And recognize there's a lot of heavy lifting to be done to make sure your data is accurate, your business processes can leverage it and the like, because the worst thing you can do, and this is not an artifact of AI, this goes to any technology, right? If you've got a, a system and you hardwire a system and lock in errors and bad process, you've just made it more expensive to fix it down the road and amplified probably the negative impact of being wrong mm. of yes. what before was a slow manual process. So you're like, like, like gender and racial biases, for example, and, exactly. and that, that's the thing that came. And I believe you read a little bit about that and some of yeah. the things for business leaders to think about. I'm like, like, yeah, that makes total sense. If we do it, I even unconsciously, and we put machine learning on top of it, you're basically teaching the machine to do all the processes on this thing that we're trying to replicate and amplify all of the things that are already broken. So it's just like a, you know, a caution. And that's why Mm -hmm. I, you know, if you look up at an analog example, it's kind of maybe kind of silly because it doesn't have the same social ramifications as what you just raised. But you know, if 30 years ago when the total quality movement or maybe even longer was, you know, at its heyday, there was a difference between inspecting in quality, i.e. looking at the end of a manufacturing line and finding everything that was not on spec and making sure it never got sent to a customer from designing in quality, making sure that your systems ran to a high level of precision within spec. 
the AI equivalent is you can have a board or a process check that looks for bias on the back end or the, you know, at some point in the process, but you're going to miss it or you're going to have a lot of unintended consequences that only get caught after the fact. You need to embed it from the very start. Your, Your awareness of the way bias can manifest, the way unintended consequences can manifest, the way data sets are already, for lack of a better word, contaminated. Uh, Mm Because there are Mm -hmm. certain data sets that we just know if you've been in this space, they're going to be a problem for you. So you need to kind of have it at every stage of the process, which is why I go back to the business in quotation marks needs to own it, not IT, not um, some sort of compliance function. It really needs to be woven in the DNA of an organization if you're going to do this in any meaningful way. Otherwise, you're just going to get caught. Yes, yes. You're going to get caught. I'm boiling. I was making some notes here around this the business case, the business DNA, have your strategy with AI integrated closely with that. Bringing back in your first story around ask for help and don't go it alone. If your company's not an expert in artificial intelligence, you can, which most aren't, partner with someone, learn, listen to this interview. <laughs> uh, drop Monica on there. Uh, and talking about asking the right questions, but also proceed with caution. You're talking about really uh, it, in, in the tech space, we do move fast in, in technology and we kind of break things and we catch it later and fix it. But it's it's a dangerous world or it, in terms of problems if we just proceed like crazy without having a more thoughtful approach up front. Yeah. A lot of the most compelling opportunities to apply this technology are things that are truly transformational to human beings' lives. But that also means the downside, if we get it wrong, can be pretty substantial. Taking another left turn because we're because we're running out of time and I wanna I just want to ask you if you wanted to if you wanted to say anything about this. I noticed when I was looking into your into your fiction, your books that you're taking a pretty hard stand there against human trafficking and the proceeds of your books um, or some of the proceeds are going to help uh, that, that specific issue. Uh, Anything you want to say specifically uh, around that or share on that idea? Yeah, I, it's, it's a problem, a societal problem. I stumbled into doing research for my first book. Um, And it was just so heartbreaking to learn about the scale of forced labor, um, child trafficking specifically, and how how much damage is being done in the world today. Um, Mm -hmm. And and at the time, it, it wasn't receiving nearly as much of the attention in the public eye as it does now. Uh, so I was just flabbergasted that I didn't know anything about it. And it was literally going on in my community um, and really any city that has a, a conflicts of major transportation um, vehicles that is a, a transportation hub. You're going to have that problem in the United States and it's mm-hmm. a problem here and globally. Um, 
so it just became very intuitive for me to weave that into those stories. Um, I was lucky enough as I continued that research and that process to meet some really fabulous people who've been on the front lines addressing the issues in multiple ways. But the, the two organizations that I, I worked with are really looking at systemic solutions, not, mm-hmm. not um, rest- restorative um, interventions with victims, which are also really important. There are a lot of great organizations, a lot of really fantastic people doing super work on that front. But how mm-hmm. do you stop it from happening to mm-hmm. begin with? Um, and so if, what I'm doing helps even in a small way to raise awareness, um, motivate any person to action, then I consider it mission accomplished. Thanks for sharing that. I just want to make sure to have a little time to talk about that. Um, in, in wrapping this up, Monica, I mean, we have covered a lot of different topics and it's been really interesting and a lot of fun for me. And I think it will be for our listeners too. What's your parting thought for listeners? Um, just for everyone to hopefully recognize that leadership is a process and it's a mindset. It's a way of showing up. It's not a job title. Mm -hmm. So every one of your listeners can be and is a leader. Their opportunities to discover how to be the leader they want to be the moment in time that they're in. And then I just thank everyone for listening. If they want to um, show their support for combating human trafficking or just interested in reading my fiction at all, they can find uh, links to all of my books on my website, which is monicamcgurk.com, or search me up by name on any of the major platforms and we'll be able to find print on demand or uh, digital versions of any of the books. Fantastic. We'll make sure to put those links to the show notes. I think for a lot of listeners today, what's really cool is we we talked about CEO life, but we also showed the possibility of such ha- of a leader can have a very well-rounded interest and well-rounded life and make an impact in a, in a, in a, in a variety of areas. And so I think from a mindset standpoint, I love, yes, it's a leadership's a process and a mindset. And a lot of it goes back to, you know, uh, what you believe is possible. And so thanks for, thanks for expanding our minds a little bit. Absolutely. Happy to do it. All right. Thanks, Monica. Thank you. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of The Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.